Our second scripture lesson this morning comes from Romans 8, 18 through 27. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits in eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. In hope, the creation itself will be set free from its enslavement to decay and will obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know the whole creation has been groaning together as it suffers the pains of labor. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, for redemption of our bodies. For in hope, we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what one has already seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very Spirit intercedes with groans too deep for words. And God, who searches hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. Thanks be to God. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. <clears throat> Loving God, your spirit groans in us, your spirit breathes in us, your spirit lives in us. In this moment of new creation, may we experience and inhabit and embody your word for the blessing of the world you love so very much. Amen. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief, it was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. Those are the opening lines to A Tale of Two Cities, yes, by Charles Dickens. I first encountered those opening lines in 8th or ninth grade English, and I was perplexed. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Those are polar opposites. So too are wisdom and foolishness, light and darkness, hope and despair. They are opposites. They cannot both be true at the same time. you got to pick one. Best of times, worst of times, hope, despair. Which is it? Those opening lines invited me into my first conscious experience of paradox. Paradox. An experience where two seemingly opposite things appear to be true at the very same time. An experience that opened my eyes to the reality that life is not always, if ever, strictly either or. 
Maybe even more often, life is bewilderingly both and, filled with seemingly contradictory things that are true at the same time. As we consider this morning the earth as our home and look for our place here, we enter into what we might call an existential paradox. We know what we have done to our planet. The damage done through carbon emissions from the start of the Industrial Revolution until now, we know the trajectory, and as we think of the earth as our home, we can be filled, perhaps overwhelmed with grief for things lost and for things we have yet to lose. And, At the same time, even as we are filled with this existential grief, real and true, we also rise every morning to the beauty of a brand new day, to a sunrise, to the quiet song of birds, to a bright blue sky, to the next new breath. This week, during one of my walks, I had a small deer walk alongside me for two whole blocks. It wasn't right up next to me, but it was a few feet away. It just kind of strolled along with me. We experience the earth as our home, and we are filled with awe or gratitude or, dare I say it, even joy. As we think of earth as our home in 2023, we are regularly filled with both profound grief and the promise of each new day. Most days, we live somewhere between despair and hope. Days where the two sometimes converge and come upon us at the very same time, despair and hope, seemingly contradictory experience of life, both true at the same time. This morning's Old Testament text goes with us into the experience of despair, into the worst of times. Jeremiah is doing what prophets do, one of the central things that prophets do. They announce the things in the world that are coming to an end, the oppressive systems, the injustice, every wasting way that harms and kills. We know how the prophets indict their major themes, the vital things. You trample on the poor and the vulnerable. You use dishonest scales. You abuse the stranger in your midst. And they say, all this, all this is coming to an end. God stands for justice and for life. Prophets say, this is what is inevitable if current trends continue. I hadn't fully appreciated until this week how much the prophets' indictments also have to do with the wasting of the land, the destruction of creation. That's Jeremiah's focus in this morning's text and a repeating theme throughout the book of Jeremiah. He comes back to it again and again. You see, Jeremiah is living in and around the destruction of Jerusalem as the Babylonian is about to and then does march in. Jeremiah is there before it happens, saying it's on the way. He's there as the city falls, and he speaks into and out of captivity, his own and that of the people. Jeremiah says to the people and the powers, they have created systems and structures so corrupt and rotted from within that they are sure to collapse. As that happens, Jeremiah looks around and says true things. 
The whole land is in ruins, can't you see? God says, many shepherds have trampled the vineyards. You've turned my pleasant fields into a desolate wasteland. Look even to the barren heights. Destroyers swarm in. Is there any place you have not defiled? You've made a desolation of the land and desolate it mourns to me. Can you picture that? Can you hear it? The land mourns to God. And the prophet's words flow into lament. Hearing just the snippet of Jeremiah's lament, it's not a stretch to name our own desolation, to feel our own despair, to hear in our day the land lament. We are a community that looks with open eyes and open hearts at the science of our climate crisis and the trajectory of collapse. We seek to find our place there, our place here, and to find ways of living lives of meaning there, here. After worship this morning, Royce will lead a Sunday seminar that will go into more detail, but we have acknowledged the arc of things here before. Drawing from the latest UN report and commentary from two of its lead authors, we know the enormity of climate crisis. We know that some of the changes unleashed by our carbon emissions, particularly in our oceans and frozen places, are now irreversible. We've passed 1.2 degrees warming, that is, the world is 1.2 degrees, more than 1.2 degrees Celsius warmer than it was at the start of the Industrial Revolution. At 1.2 degrees warmer, we are already experiencing climate disruptions, superstorms, a summer with record high temperatures, an increase in climate refugees. I'm just back from New York City where we had a day of unprecedented flooding. The science indicates that we're on track to reach 1.5 degrees Celsius in, early, in the early 2030s and 2 degrees as early as the 2040s. At 1.5 degrees, we can expect a number of ecosystems to reach their adaptive limits more than they can bear. And somewhere between 2 and 3 degrees, we can expect the Greenland and West Antarctic ice sheets to disappear, accompanied by 2 to 10 meters in rise in sea level. A quarter of a billion people live on land less than 2, two meters above sea level. These st statistics are conservative. And what Royce will share later will probably be even more up-to-date than these are. Joel Gerges, a scientist who was one of the lead authors of the UN's latest report, says that it's important to name and grasp the enormity of this crisis, not to throw our hands up and to give up, but to be clear-eyed. There are some changes we have unleashed that are irreversible. Our collective effort to date has not been sufficient to stop major components of collapse. But Gerges writes, how bad we let it get is still in our hands. Edward Carr, another lead author of the report, says it's important to understand all this because it's important to understand that it's too late for just incremental change. He says that so that we might grasp that what is needed is nothing less than transformational change. The complete transforming of the economic and political systems that have got us here. Prophets 
stand in the reality of the world and say true things and they call out the things that are coming to an end, the things that must come to an end. But that's not all prophets do. Remember, they announce what must come to an end, but the biblical prophets also announce the new thing that is coming to life, the new thing that God is bringing to life, even in our desolation, even in our despair. Something is coming to an end. Something is coming to life, both true at the same time. Living in the tension of that paradox opens up the opportunity of turning away from systems that are ending and turning toward the new thing. The prophet makes clear the necessity of that turning. That turning opens up the possibility, even of, in our despair, the possibility for hope. Now, something else that I've learned in the past few weeks is that hope is getting a bad rap. Even within the climate action community, uh, Rebecca Solnit, uh, of a local writer, has launched a project and edited a book with Thelma Lutanutabua called Not Too Late, with essays from climate scientists and activists. They argue for hope and take on what they call climate doomers, who they characterize unfairly, I think, as unhelpfully defeatist. Now, those who take seriously climate collapse have taken umbrage, understandably, and they insist we must speak honestly about science and the trajectory of collapse. They respond essentially, hope will not help us here. I've even heard and read folks say, I've given up on hope. And I get that. I like how Jem Bendel, whom a number of us read and follow, sifts through all this. He speaks in terms of forms of hope. Bendel takes on, head on, with no apology, empty, facile hope. Hope that ignores the realities of science. But he also notices that different people mean different things when they say hope. There are ways of evoking hope that are not helpful. If hope means, oh, just hope for the best, there's no need to do anything, well, that's not helpful. But across the writers I've read this week and for the past few years, each articulates, each in their own way, a form of hope that can ground us even in our grieving, even in our despair. Bendel calls this hope beyond hope. Solnit calls it hope in the dark. Joanna Macy calls it active hope. For our conversation this morning, let's call it real hope. And remember, when we're talking about hope here, here in this room, in this community, we are always ultimately talking about our hope in God, the hope that we find in Jesus Christ. So let's say what hope is not. Hope is not the same thing as optimism. Optimism is the perspective that things will turn out okay pretty much no matter what. It envisions that certain rosy results are inevitable and moves forward as if they will happen. Optimism is about as useful as pessimism 
which is to say, not very. Pessimism says everything will turn out bad, so why bother working for good? Optimism says everything will turn out okay, why bother worrying about the hard realities? Real hope is not the same thing as optimism. It doesn't assume rosy results. In fact, real hope doesn't depend on results at all. A number of these writers point to the way that Václav Havel has articulated, and it's amazing. Almost every single one of them points to Václav Havel's articulation. He said, Hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well. Hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something is worth doing no matter how it turns out. Real hope lets go of needing to control the way the world works out. It acknowledges the things that are beyond our control, the consequences we have already set in motion, standing, but then standing in the world as it is. Real hope faces all that and also sees a greater good at work. No matter what the circumstances, whether we call that good God or Christ as we do here, or whether we call it the human community, Jim Bendel puts it this way. This is a quote from his book. There is something else entirely that some people are alluding to when they speak of hope, which is a kind of faith about the ultimate rightness of all things, no matter what occurs. Personally, he says, I have that kind of faith. It's a faith that is also encouraged by multiple religions that encourage us towards living lovingly without attachment to outcome. That kind of religious hope is not involving a wish or an expectation or even a realistic possibility, but a deeper knowing in us of the nature of reality and thus an instinct for living lovingly. Of course, we speak of that form of hope here in terms of Christ. Hope is not wishful thinking. It's not wishing the world were, uh, th that the world were other than it is. Hope is not Tinkerbell dancing through the world, sprinkling fairy dust so that the world is magically made right. Hope, real hope, begins in a groan. We hear that in this morning's Romans text. Hope begins in groans too deep for words. Hope enters into the world, into the midst of the suffering of the world, and it doesn't look away. It enters into the pain of the world and groans. And it's not just any groan, it's the groan of all creation. We know that the whole of creation has been groaning, is in the pains of childbirth up until now. In Romans... The Apostle Paul, throughout the book of Romans, is speaking of the grand sweep of things. The God who created all creation in Jesus Christ has entered into creation and set it free. What God was doing all along, creating and recreating and loving, God is doing in Jesus Christ. And in the power of resurrection, God is doing that now in the body of Christ in us. The place for us here is always always in the body of Christ. And here, 
as we're speaking, the body of Christ is our place in all creation, an integrated, interconnected part of all creation, the new creation groaning as we birth together something new. And look carefully in the text. What is creation groaning for? For the children of God to be revealed. Creation is groaning for the children of God to show up. To be who we were created to be. A new creation groaning and loving and healing in and with a hurting world. When we have these conversations here, the question always comes up, as it should, but what can we do? What can I do? It's a question that I've come to hear almost like a lament. Ours is an ongoing conversation, so here on this Sunday, I'll share a bit of what I see today, particularly from my reading over the last few weeks. I think these climate scientists and activists are suggesting that one of the things we need to do first is to name what we can't do and lament. They insist that we acknowledge the severity of climate crisis and collapse and realize that there are some impacts that are irreversible. They invite us to grieve that, to groan and live in the world that is before us, doing the good we can do the good we must. That's one thing. The climate scientists I've mentioned point us to the big work. What did, what did Edward Carr say? The time for incremental change is past. We must collectively engage in transformational change, transforming systems. We've been a part of that before. Our anti-racism movement, our movements for justice, we need to use the activist muscles we have developed in other struggles here to face the big issues and to make our leaders do what is needed. That's the second thing. And then, some of the climate activists I've mentioned, they invite us to stand in the reality of climate collapse and tend to the hurt that is unfolding even now. To be fully present, asking, how can I help? How can I assist in lessening the suffering as the collapse process intensifies? How can I be here to comfort others and remain calm in my acceptance, steadfast, even when things are grim? How can I help in the wake of fires and storms and floods? How can I help as there are more and more climate refugees? Those are just three things in our continuing conversation. But I want to suggest that even before we reach that question, what can we do that we sit with the question that my friend and colleague Lauren Van Ham asks, and that is, who will we be? Who will I be? Who will we be as the climate changes? Next Sunday afternoon, we'll have the opportunity to experience that question together with folks who will gather here from the Marin Interfaith community, from Congregation Rodef Shalom, 
from Westminster Presbyterian in Tiburon, from the Project ADAPT community and other faith communities. We will gather in reverence. In our love for and interconnectedness and creation, we'll go on a bit of a pilgrimage together with opportunities for meditation, experiencing nature, and here in this room, we will be, be witness to Peter's uh, photography from Standing Rock. We'll, we'll do that in worship and then also in that afternoon experience. Somewhere between despair and hope. Somewhere between despair and hope. Somewhere in the midst of despair and hope. There is a place for you. There is a place for us here in all that is. It's grounded in the groaning of all creation and in the conviction that the God who created all that is accompanies their creation in love, always has, always will. And in all that groaning, hope. Hope is not about controlling the results. Hope trusts that God is at work, that we are a part of that work, and that work is worth doing regardless of the result. Hope is groaning and grieving and loving and living and engaging the work that is ours to do. We live in the paradox of our times. As creation groans for the children of God to appear, hope is showing up in the midst of hard realities, part of God's new creation. Hope is showing up in the midst of all that and coming to life. 